Okay, so we are going to get into tonight's second session, which is why so much suffering. And before we do that, I just want to say this much. The first three sessions in this series, we have been looking at evidence for the existence of God, evidence for the reliability of the Bible. We've looked at some of the evidence for the creation-evolution debate, and we've, un- I guess we've uh, uncovered some of the, the fallacies about evolution that many people may not know. And so I want to, to you to understand that tonight, when we approach this subject of why so much suffering, we are going to be using as our textbook the Bible. Okay, so we're not just going to come at this from any old angle. We are going to look at what does the Bible say about this subject to try and understand why is there so much suffering in the world. Before we begin, I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads and I'm going to offer a word of prayer. So let's do that as we just uh, pause before this session. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you will come close to us tonight as we venture into this topic of why there is so much suffering in the world. Help us to understand, Lord. We pray that you will draw close to us, that you will speak to us through your word, and that give us wisdom tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the topic of why so much suffering. I mentioned before, Time magazine carried a title once, Evil, Does It Exist or Do Bad Things Just happen and people want to know who's responsible for evil. We kind of recognise that evil does exist but who's responsible? And I want to say in regard to this topic of why so much suffering, there are, uh, if we don't have God in the picture, if we believe in a universe that doesn't contain God, then the answer to the question why so much suffering, well that's the way it is. Death and struggle is the way of life, right? Suffering is just part of the way it is. There is no why. That's the way life came to be. On the other hand, there are some religions that teach that good and evil are like equal parts and they will always be present. They have always been present and they will always be present on into the future. Good and evil constantly together. And that's not a very optimistic view because we would like to see evil come to an end, right? We would like to see suffering come to an end. And is that ever going to happen? Is that possible? And so when we approach this subject, one of the things we need to understand is the Bible declares that God is love. It says says it there in 1 John 4, 8. It says it again in the same chapter and it says it in a variety of ways in other places in the Bible. The Bible declares that God is love. And perhaps, well in fact... It's true that for somebody who believes that there is a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, the question of why so much suffering becomes a difficult question to answer. Because if God doesn't care, well, it's easy. There's so much suffering because God doesn't care. But if you're going to claim that there's a God of love in the universe, then it begs the question, Why is there so much suffering? Why does not God do something about it? If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something? Or if he's all-loving, why doesn't he do something? Maybe he's not all-powerful or maybe he's not all-loving, but the Bible declares him to be both. So we need to look at this subject. And we're going to do so from trying to understand the biblical material. Maybe you have an insurance policy that says... We do not insure against acts of God. Ever heard that? <laughs> Too often, right? Yeah. Anytime you try and make a claim, usually, right? We don't insure against acts of God. And basically what they will say is disasters and destruction, uh, they will regard these as acts of God. And the question is, are they, in fact, acts of God? Is God the perpetrator of evil on our planet and destruction. Is that what God wants? And uh, we want to look at this. And we're going to go back to the Bible. We're going to look at a story from the beginning of this great saga. Now, I'm sure that we're all familiar with the Star Wars saga. I grew up on Star Wars and I was very familiar with it. I was, I think, 11 years old when I went to see the first Star Wars film. 
and uh, many times it's appeared in uh, magazines and in this particular magazine it says George Lucas talks to Bill Moyers about the spiritual side of the force and it talks about where George Lucas draws some of his ideas for these blockbuster movies that he makes. And what was fascinating to me, having not been raised on the Bible, having not really any knowledge of the Bible, but being raised on sci-fi, when I came to the Bible, I thought there's a remarkable story in the Bible that's similar to what we see in the Star Wars saga. We actually find here in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, it says this. It says, And war broke out in heaven. And I want to pause right there because that's one of the most unlikely verses you'll find in the Bible. The war broke out where? In heaven. And, you know, this is, we t- the Bible talks about the heavens. War amongst the stars. Star Wars, if you please. A war amongst the stars. And it actually describes this character who was a good guy, who became a bad guy, and changed his name. That's in the Star Wars story too. But it says war broke out in heaven. We associate heaven with good things. We sing songs about heaven. You know, I was with my loved one and we were in heaven. And whenever we associate the word heaven with something, it's usually a good thing, right? But the Bible says that war broke out in heaven. It says, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is where I want to begin the story. I want to begin with the story that Even before the world began, there was war in heaven. There was a conflict between God and his angels and between this character called the dragon who is revealed to be that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. And it says of him that he deceives the whole world. So he seems to have been a deceiver from the very beginning and there was a war between God and this being that we have come to know as the devil or Satan. Now, I should start here and say, if we went down to the shopping mall here at Glendale and we were you know, doing some Q&A and asking some people their opinions and we asked them how many people believed in God, you'd get a certain percentage of people say, yes, I believe in God. But if you ask them the question, how many people believed in the devil, you'd get fewer people say yes to that question. In other words, there's fewer people who believe in a literal personal devil than believe in a literal personal God. They think that the devil is a fictitious character, but the Bible depicts that this character we know as the devil is a real being. And we want to unpack where he came from. What do we know about this? And so there was war in heaven, and he was cast out. But where did this devil come from? That's what we want to find out. There are a number of passages in the Bible and we're going to go back there and look at them. In Isaiah, chapter 14, in the Old Testament, it talks about this being and maybe you've heard of this name. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Anybody ever heard of the name Lucifer? How many of you have got kids named Lucifer? (laughs) What's the problem? You haven't named your kids Lucifer. You see... Lucifer, again, is associated with the devil. This is the same character. Notice how you are fallen from heaven. Didn't we just see that he'd been fallen from heaven? In the book of Revelation, there was a war in heaven. He was cast out. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? His name is not a bad name. His name means light bearer. In other words, he was kind of like God's messenger. God would give him a message and he would give it to the hosts of heaven. He was a light bearer. That word is not a bad word, Lucifer. But we don't name our kids Lucifer. Just like you don't typically name your kids Adolf. Nothing wrong with the name Adolf, right? But because of its negative connotations from the Second World War, not many people name their kids Adolf anymore. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, where did he say it? In his heart. You have said in, by the way, if you say something in your heart, is it visible to me? You know, there's a a Bible verse that says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. It also says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the heart, it's kind of the seat of beliefs and feelings in the Bible. It says, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. This is the real game of thrones. Because the Bible says God has a throne and here is Lucifer saying, I'm going to exalt my throne above yours. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now the Most High is a reference to God himself. And so here we have this being called Lucifer. We don't know much about him yet. But he has said in his heart, I want to be the top man. I want the top job. I want to be above the stars of God. So this is something we find out in the book of Isaiah. We have some other information that we read about in Ezekiel, another Old Testament book in Ezekiel 28. It says, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Now we're going to look at the story of the Garden of Eden in a moment, but maybe you've heard of the story of the Garden of Eden. There was only two people there, Adam and Eve, and then there was the talking serpent. And we've already read in the book of Revelation that the devil and Satan is also called that serpent of old. Right? You were in... Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. Uh, was your covering. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So this verse reveals that this being, Lucifer, the devil, Satan, he was called Lucifer then, he was created, he's a created being. Let's continue. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Do you know another name for a cherub? An angel, that's right. An angel. So here we discover that he was created. He was an angel. He was the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. It says you were on the holy mountain of God. In other words, he was very close to God in terms of his position. So Lucifer was an angel, created, and he had a high position close to God. It says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Hang on. It says he was perfect from the day you were created till, that's a little word, till. Till iniquity or rebellion is another word you could put in there. Until rebellion was found in you. Your heart, notice that word heart again. Remember it says you have said in your heart... It says here, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Apparently this is a very beautiful creature. You ever notice somebody who is strikingly beautiful but they are enamoured by their own beauty? Some people are beautiful on the outside but ugly on the inside. It says your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendour. By the abundance of your trading, by the way, that word trading is more like peddling in the original. You know, a peddler is somebody who trades, but when we talk about peddling, we usually talk about peddling lies. I want you to think about it in that way. By the abundance of your trading or your peddling, you became filled with violence where? It says within. Filled with violence within. All of this is internal to begin with. It's what he thinks in his heart. His heart was lifted up. He was filled with violence within. And it says, and you sinned. Now, we mentioned the other night, what does sin mean? What does sin really mean? 
It really means rebelling. It means breaking the rules. In fact, you know, uh, if you've ever watched a game of rugby union, oh no, rugby league actually up here, isn't it? Rugby league's popular. If you've watched a game of rugby league, maybe you're watching the State of Origin or something, and somebody commits a serious foul, they get sent from the field and they get sent to where? The sin bin, right? So we know what sin is, right? Because we get that even in our football games. You get sent to the sin bin if you commit a serious breach of the rules. And so it says, you sinned. You were filled with violence from him and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And we've already seen how he was cast out of heaven. Here's a question. Did God make a mistake? How could a perfect being begin a rebellion? Here we have what we're told about this creature is that he is called Lucifer. He then is called the dragon, Satan, the devil, that serpent of old. A number of names. We're told that he was created. He was created a beautiful, perfect angel. He was close to God. And then we're told, until rebellion or iniquity or sin was found in you. How could a perfect being begin to rebel? Quite simply, because God created this being and later other intelligent beings like us, he created them with the freedom to choose. He created this being as a free being. And this being served close to the throne of God. But without explanation, and the Bible gives no explanation of why, pride and envy began to rise in the heart of this being and he wanted what God had. And that began to grow in him. And the Bible says it was within his heart. And so it wasn't visible. This rebellion was within. It wasn't visible to begin with. But it began to grow and he began to covet and desire God's position. A perfect being but a power of choice to remain faithful to God or to choose another path that would set him on a path of rebellion against God. Here's another question. Why didn't God destroy the devil immediately? The Bible says God knows everything, right? He can read hearts and minds. Why didn't God simply see into his heart and say, ah, I know where you're headed, I'm going to get rid of you. The Bible says that that rebellion was, began within and the other angels of which the Bible speaks about, there are other angels in heaven, millions and millions of them, by the way. We'll cover that in another session. But there are millions of angels in heaven and it seems like Lucifer had a prominent position over them. He was God's messenger, a message bearer. And they could not discern that there was any problem with this angel called Lucifer. And had God destroyed him straight away they would have wondered why God had destroyed him. Now, God could have said, well, don't worry, I saw into his heart, he was heading in the wrong direction, I've dealt with it, just trust me. Can you imagine, I like the way I heard one guy talk about this, he says, imagine that Lucifer is conducting the heavenly choir and God's there on his throne and God sees that rebellion is beginning in his heart, so God just zaps him with a bolt of lightning and he falls down dead, and God steps over the body and says, now let's resume verse 2. You see, Lucifer began to insinuate and he began to accuse and say things like, you know, God is wonderful, but if I was in charge... And, you know, I understand that God has these rules and these boundaries in place for the lower beings. But we're intelligent. We don't need those boundaries. We, we are intelligent enough to govern ourselves without the boundaries that God puts in place. And if I was in charge, 
And, God, and the devil began to insinuate that God was not trustworthy. And I'm sure the angels were confused about this. The Bible actually tells us that a third of the angels followed him in his rebellion. We don't know how many angels there are, but there are millions. Millions and millions. And a third of them followed him. So God did not destroy the devil immediately because his rebellion was not apparent immediately. And the questions about whether or not God was just in the way he governed the universe would not have been answered had he destroyed the devil immediately. You know, we've had dictators on planet Earth, haven't we? Like Hitler and Stalin and so forth. And suppose you challenged their authority. What do you think would happen to you? You didn't last very long. You know, you were cut down pretty quick. And when that happened, was that, were you more inclined to follow that leader or were you more inclined to follow him through fear? rather than loyalty. And so these were the kind of things that God was dealing with. The Bible says that God is love. And he loves his people and he's made them free and he's given them the ability to love in return. But love requires freedom. I'm married. And when I asked my wife to marry me, I told her that I loved her and I wanted to spend my life with her and that if I was going to ask her to marry me and if she said yes, I'd be the happiest man in the world. But if she said no, I'd break her arm. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I didn't say that. But had I said that, would that make her more or less inclined to say yes? Well, she may have said yes, but I'm not sure she would have said yes out of an undevoted, uh, unconditional love. And so God, re- re- God is love and therefore love requires freedom. God gives us freedom. We can say yes to God or we can say no to God. We have the freedom to do that. And freedom, is, re- freedom involves a risk, a risk on God's part because he gives you freedom. You have the freedom to choose. You might walk away. When I asked my wife if she would marry me, she had the choice to say yes or no. There was a risk involved in asking. God is love, therefore he gives us freedom, but that freedom involves risk. But that risk also involves responsibility. In other words, if I choose, if I have a choice between life or death, and I choose death instead of life, I'm responsible for that choice. In other words, God gives us freedom. Freedom involves, sorry, he got his love, and because of that he gives us freedom. Freedom involves risk, but risk also involves responsibility. We must own the decisions that we make, and Lucifer needed to own the decision that he made. There's a passage in the Bible. We'll come to um, the Garden of Eden soon, but I just want to, cover this story. There's a story of the wheat and the tares that Jesus told. It's in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And uh, it's a story uh, about a parable. It says, another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Man goes out and sows seed in the field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have tares or weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. When the wheat and the tares first come out of the ground, it is difficult to discern which is which. They don't look that different, just coming out of the ground. And so he said, don't gather them up now because you might make a mistake. You might say, hey, that's a bad one and that's a good one and you might uproot some of the good ones by trying to take out the bad ones. He said, let the two grow together until the harvest. 
And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The point being, he is saying in this parable, you have to wait until the fruit is fully, fully grown to discern the difference, to be able to fully discern the difference. In other words, there are things you're not going to know until that fruit has fully grown. Jesus explained the parable. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus was telling this parable about weeds and wheat. But he's saying he's the one who sows good seed, but there is an enemy who sows bad seed who sows the weeds. Well, let's go back to the creation of our world and the Bible records how God created the world in six days and he creates a paradise. I invite you to grab a Bible and read that first chapter of the Bible and the various days, the six days of creation, what God does. And then finally he creates human beings. In other words, he creates this paradisical environment and he puts humans into it And he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the world. God gives them a planet as a wedding present. That's a pretty good wedding present. And God had said, because this rebellion had already taken place, and we read in the book of Revelation that the devil and Satan is called the dragon, but he's also called something else called that serpent of old. God knew that Satan had rebelled He had been cast out of heaven and he said, I'm going to restrict this being's movements and I'm warning you, God warned them, that in order to preserve... Why is this not working? What happened? Okay. God warned them that there would be one tree in the garden in which they lived that they weren't to eat from. It says here in Genesis 2, 16, 17, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God had made the whole garden, many, many trees. He'd made the whole world. I was just driving here, you know, from down Morissette Way where I live. How many trees are are between here and Morissette? Uh, Lots and lots of trees, right? How many trees were on the planet when God made the the world? And he says, there's one tree I don't want you to go near because in the day you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. But the Bible tells us, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So the serpent is in this tree and he says to the woman, has God really said you can't eat of any of the trees of the, 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 the garden? And she said, well... No, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but there's one tree we can't eat of. God says, don't touch it, don't eat of it, because you'll surely die. And the serpent contradicts God and says, the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. The Bible says that the devil is a liar and the father of it. And they were deceived. They believed the serpent instead of believing the word of God. Here's a couple of things. People say, well, why didn't God protect them? He did. If you think about it, there's an entire world full of trees and God says, I'm going to restrict this serpent, this Lucifer, this Satan, I'm going to restrict him to one tree and one planet in one solar system. I'm being very restrictive about his access. And people have a choice and God told them the consequences of their actions. Let me fill you in on this. Have you ever thought about God's prohibition about eating the fruit? And how death seems to be a fairly heavy consequence for taking a piece of fruit. Ever thought about that? In other words, if I popped down to the road here and went to Coles and I popped in there and thought nobody was looking, I grabbed myself an apple and you know, walked out of the shop and then I get grabbed by security. And they haul me in and they're going to charge me, I've stolen an apple and I'm going to get the death penalty. How do you think that would go down in Australia? I hope you barrack for me. Why is it that in the day they ate thereof, they would surely die? Uh, By the way, 
We need to read carefully the Bible. The Bible does not say in the day you eat thereof, I'm going to kill you. The Bible does not say that. It says in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And what God was basically saying is, this is an opportunity for you to demonstrate loyalty to me because the day you eat thereof, you're choosing to take a path away from me and I am the only source of life in the universe. And when you take a step, a direction away from me, you're taking a direction away from the only source of life in the universe. That's why the wages of sin is death. They didn't die that day. You all have a cell phone, right? That's what they call them in America. (laughs) We all have a mobile phone, right? A smartphone. Some of our phones are smarter than we are. But if you look at your smartphone, you'll notice that it tells you that you've only got so many percent battery power, right? Let's say it's 75% battery power. And tomorrow, if mine said 75% battery power, the next day it'd say a lot less. And then the next day, well, probably wouldn't be working because my battery's pretty weak at the moment. But the point is, if you don't charge your phone for a week, it dies of battery power. It needs to be connected to the power, doesn't it? To remain alive. And what God is trying to tell us is we need to be connected to him if we want life. And I can connect my phone to the lead and even if it dies, at some point, if somebody comes along and throws that switch, because I'm connected, I'll come back to life again like the phone. But if I'm not connected, you can throw the switch all day long and it won't, the phone won't come back to life. In other words, when your battery dies on your phone, if you don't charge it again, if you don't connect to the source of power, that phone will never live again. Is that right? And what God is saying in this story when he says, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die, they didn't die that day, but they began to die. Their life power was draining away and they had chosen a direction away from God and God is the only source of life in the universe. You ever had uh, somebody phone you up or maybe knock on your door and say, would you like to change your power supply company? Ever had that? Change your electricity company. And it was like the devil came calling and saying, hey, Would you like to sign up to a better electricity power company? I'm offering you a great deal. It's cheaper than the other one. But you're going to have more power. And so you sign up. And so the other one gets cut off. And now you're on this new power system. But all of a sudden you get a blackout. And you you discover that what you signed up for is not what you expected. It's not what you expected. In a way, there were two trees in the midst of the garden. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and one was the tree of life. Uh, by the way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have that today. You know what it's called? Google. <laughs> it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There's good there and there's evil there. But um, they were like, it was like a voting booth. You could decide who you want to vote for. And as you know, sometimes we vote for people and then they disappoint, don't they? And about three weeks later, you wish you'd vote for somebody else. And that's what happened. They voted for somebody, but they got stuck with the government that they voted for. And we, to a large extent, have been living under a satanic government ever since. And that is one of the reasons, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but that's one of the reasons why we live in a world of so much suffering. The Bible describes the devil as the ruler of this world. Three times Jesus calls him that. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Why? Because we'd voted for him way back in the Garden of Eden. God begged us not to. But we made him the ruler of this world. And to a large extent he claims dominion here. He never created the planet but he claims dominion here. When Jesus came to earth, the devil even tried to tempt Jesus. Notice what he says to him. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. When was it delivered to him? Back in the garden, right? Back in the garden of Eden. All this authority I'll give to you, This has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Effectively, the devil was saying to Jesus, 
bow down to me, worship me, I'll give you this planet, you just give me the universe. That's really what he was trying to trade. You don't have to go through suffering. You don't have to go through self-denial. I'll give you the planet right now. You want to save the planet? I'll give it to you. But you have to give me the universe. You've got to bow down and worship me. I become God. And you just get the planet. And not, not surprisingly, Jesus didn't go for that deal. And I just wonder what all the kingdoms of this world were that he showed him. Because it says it showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. It says all this can be yours. Therefore if you will worship before me all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him get behind me Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So Jesus turned him down on that one. But like I said... Back there in the Garden of Eden, it was like a voting booth. They voted for the wrong guy. But what Jesus has done, what God has done through Jesus, is given us another opportunity to vote. We get to vote again. Who are you going to vote for, for who you want to govern the universe from here on in? That's really what this is all about. The Bible records a celestial meeting in heaven. Notice what it says here. This is in uh, the Old Testament, the book of Job. Many believe that the book of Job was written even before the book of Genesis. Moses, about three and a half thousand years ago, wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's believed he also wrote the book of Job. And some believe that this is actually the oldest book in the Bible. And it includes this great battle between good and evil, this great battle between God and the devil, this great controversy between good and evil. It says here in Job 1, 6 and 7, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, "Where From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. This meeting doesn't take place on earth because God says, Where do you come from, Satan? He says, I come from the earth. And it says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves Who are these sons of God? Do you know in the Bible that Adam is described as the son of God? In the Gospel of Luke, it actually records a whole uh, genealogy from Jesus through to Adam. And it says that someone someone was the son of Seth and Seth was the son of Adam and Adam was the son of God. It calls Adam the son of God. In my imagination here, There's a whole group of all the Adams from all the unfallen worlds gathering to God. You might call it the G20, the Galactic 20. They're gathering at a meeting before God, but Satan turns up representing earth. Why? Well, Adam's dead. Adam has died. And Satan is claiming to be the representative of planet earth. And God says in the the presence of all the other sons of God, he says to Lucifer, where do you come from? Oh, I come from planet Earth. I I walk freely up and down in it because it's my dominion. And God is asking the question, not because he doesn't know the answer, he's asking the question because he wants Satan to admit that in front of all these other sons of God. And and, and so they're saying, ah, that planet that's in rebellion, that planet that people actually get sick on, that planet that people actually die on, He has dominion of that planet. And then God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He says, you know that planet that you claim to have dominion over that's in rebellion against me? Do you know about Job? Because Job lives on that planet, but he's not in rebellion against me. In fact, if you think about it, God's saying to Satan, you know you have a rebel? on your planet, one who's choosing to serve me, even though he lives on a planet that's in rebellion. And he says, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? You've protected him. You've protected him and given him wealth, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, 
the Lord says, I'm not going to do that. But the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand in the sense that you have dominion over that planet, but I'm not going to permit you to lay a hand on his person. And Satan goes out from that uh, presence of God and he goes back to earth and you see that Job is attacked. His business is attacked. His transport is attacked. His family is attacked. His health is attacked. His flocks and herds are attacked. He has ten children. They're around one of their uh, brothers' or sisters' houses having a birthday party. A tornado comes through, destroys the house, killing them all. And a servant runs away and comes to Job and tells him, how would you feel? Ever heard of the patience of Job? Comes from this story. The Bible says, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. In the Bible, when you read the story of Job, Job doesn't know what's going on. He's not party, like you and I, to the conversation that's taken place between Satan and God and, and what's happening over the squabble over planet Earth. But he's saying, You know what? I don't know what's going on, but I trust God. I know God so well. Me and God, we have a, a relationship. And I know God so well that this isn't God's doing. He says, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. In fact, there's a place in Job where he says, though he slay me, I'll trust him. I think God knows what he's doing. That's what Job says. So when we come to the question of why so much suffering, with this understanding, number one, I think, I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe there's so much suffering. Number one, because of sin and rebellion, we live in a broken world. The world we live in is not the paradise God created. Do you think there were earthquakes and tornadoes in the Garden of Eden? The Bible actually says, after God creates, he says, and the world was good, 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 very good. So we live in a broken world. Our world does not behave in the, world that it, in the way it was supposed to. It does not behave in the way that it was designed to. It has a disease. That disease called sin. Notice what the Bible says here in Ecclesiastes 9.11. should be easy to remember that verse, 9.11. It says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favour to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. I'm going to drive home from here tonight. God forbid I might have an accident on the road. I could get killed tonight. That won't be God's fault. Right? It could happen. Might be a drunk driver on the road. Who knows? We live in a dangerous place. Have you noticed? Bad things happen down here. And we live in a broken world. So I think, why is there so much suffering? First, because of sin and rebellion, we live in a broken world. Number two, why is there so much suffering? Because of Satan, there is an active adversary. Just as we saw with Job, there is somebody who is actively trying to make life miserable. Notice what the Bible says. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. goes on in Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. This isn't going to last forever. God is going to bring it to an end but he is patiently waiting for us to make a choice about who we want to govern our lives. He's patiently waiting because, I hate to tell you this, but the majority of people on planet Earth aren't choosing God right now. And many people don't even believe that there's a devil and they're following his plan, but they don't even believe he exists. So why is there so much suffering? Because of sin, we live in a broken world. Because of Satan, we have an active adversary. And the third one, we don't like to think about. 
It's because of selfishness. What I like to call man-made misery. There is a lot of misery in the world because of what we decide to do. Because of my choices. Right? But we don't like to think about that. You remember Andrew Denton used to conduct a series of interviews called Enough Rope? Anybody see any of those? Yeah. One time he, he uh, interviewed Bono, lead singer of U2. And he said to Bono, now you need to understand something, the background of this interview. Andrew Denton is an atheist. Okay? He declared that. Bono, he'd be the first to admit he's not the most faithful believer, but he does believe in God. Right? And so Andrew Denton is asking a question of Bono. An atheist asking a question of somebody who does believe in God. He says this, as a man of faith, when you look at Africa, what's your concept of a working God? You understand his question. He's basically saying, "Um, tell me about what's happening in Africa if you believe in God. And I thought Bono's reaction, his response was quite interesting. This is what he said. He said, I do have a faith and it's challenged on a daily basis by what I see in Africa because there's a lot of famine there, there's a lot of conflict there. He said, yes, and yet more than that, I have a sense that really people are the problem. We're the problem, really. God gets a lot of bad press. And he talks about the tsunami. You remember the tsunami that killed thousands of people a few years ago? The tsunami was very eloquent in a way, he says. The response, that's a natural disaster, this awful misnomer. Mother Nature is just dreadful. But in Africa, we have an avoidable catastrophe of tsunami proportions every week. So we have the technology, we have the resources, we have the resources if we have the will. So I've gone through my shouting at God. I've gone through my angry phase. But I finally end up looking at my own indolence and fighting with it, and indifference, because I have it too. And I feel I'm not alone in this. I feel there's a generation of people. I kind of realised this isn't something we can really blame God for. This is about us, really, and that's where I am on that. And I thought that was a good response. So why so much suffering? This may not answer all your questions, but I think it's a place to start. I think there are three reasons Because of sin and rebellion, we live in a broken world. It doesn't operate the way it should. Because of Satan, we have an active adversary trying to mess things up. And because of our own selfishness, there's a lot of man-made misery. But we can't talk about suffering unless we introduce Jesus into the picture. Because when you look at Jesus, you have to ask, what's going on there? We're going to unpack this a lot more as the series progresses, but the Bible really claims that Jesus was God coming to the earth as a man. In other words, God came himself to planet earth to walk with us, talk with us, journey with us, and then to suffer for us that we may have a hope of a better life. When we saw Jesus here, we saw lots of acts of God. Jesus fed the hungry. He clothed the naked. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He forgave the sinners. We saw lots of acts of God when Jesus was here. He broke into our world. He was not invited. We actually didn't want him. Uh, we, we didn't want him to come. The Bible actually says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God chose to broke in, break into this world in the person of Jesus and he chose to show us what God was like. He chose, us, cho- chose to show us how to treat one another and he chose then to go and die a wretched and miserable suffering death on a cross in order to give us the opportunity of everlasting life. He gave us an opportunity to vote again about who we want to govern our lives and govern the universe. 
In Hebrews 2.14 it says, Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. God is going to bring evil and suffering and wickedness to an end. And we get to choose whether we want him to or not. We get to choose whether we want life or something else. What is God like when Jesus on earth we saw plenty of acts of God? So when you think about those lines in your insurance policy about acts of God that they don't insure against, maybe it's not God's plan that those disasters occur. You know, there's a beautiful line in John 10.10. It says, the thief, these are the words of Jesus, and he's comparing the character of God with the character of the devil. And he says, the thief, that's the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, says Jesus, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Those are our options. Those are our choices. We made a bad choice long, long ago, and we can blame Adam and Eve, but the bottom line is we've all made the same choices. At some point in our life, we've chosen to turn our back on God. We don't want to hear what he has to say. But God is saying, come back to me, and I will give you life, and I'll give it to you more abundantly. That's in the here and now. I can testify my life is more abundant now than it ever was before I met God. Let me explain it with this last illustration. In World War II, France was occupied by the Nazis. In fact, there are pictures of Hitler standing by the Eiffel Tower. Maybe you've seen them. France was occupied by the Nazis and at that time, the people in France, they had a choice. Some of them chose to cooperate with the Nazis and they became collaborators. Others decided, no, we're going to work with the Allies who are planning to come and rescue us and deliver us and free us. We're going to work with them and they became known as the Resistance. You and I, we're born in occupied France. We're born in the land of the enemy to a large degree. We're born under a government we don't want. And we have a choice about whether we collaborate with the enemy or whether we join the resistance. And we cooperate with the allies who are right now planning an invasion force to deliver us. The Bible talks about an event called the second coming of Christ and we're going to talk about this in future programs. But it tells us that right now God is preparing an invasion force to deliver those who are part of the resistance. And I want to get you to think about whether you want to collaborate with the enemy or be part of the resistance and cooperate with the allies who are about to deliver this planet from the pain and suffering that it's experienced over thousands of years.